Good morning, Sailorville. Well, that great old hymn does beg the question, is it well with your soul? Because if it's not well with your soul, it's just not well with you. And if it's not well with your soul, maybe you need to find another well. And maybe some of you need to dig another well. Hence the topic of the message is I invite you to take your Bibles and find Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 as we continue in our story and our, in our uh, series, Faith of Our Fathers, and we focus on Isaac, who is the heir apparent to the promises that were given to Abraham. Uh, those of you who are following closely along, and that's many of you, will know that uh, it seems like we're skipping over a major section at the end of verse, or chapter 25, and namely the birth of the twins, uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, uh, the twins to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, we're going to come back and capture that next week as we move into chapter 27. But for this morning, we're looking at Isaac, and we're, I want you to notice the subject is the wells of our lives and uh, whether or not we need to dig another well. And I don't want to get into the sermon, but notice the many times the, the, the word well or wells is used in this passage as we begin in chapter 26 and verse 1 where it says, Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich, gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds, many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with the earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we so Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water or living water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contend, uh, contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved there uh, from there to and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land." 
From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Pray with me, will you? Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the great stories of our patriarchs. And in this series, Faith of Our Fathers, Lord, we are now moving into the life of Isaac. And Lord, as such, looking at these wells in his life, uh, some stopped up, some having to be redug. But there are lessons to be learned here, God, and help us not to miss them and bless our servant as he preaches your word today. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. So what do you do when your well runs dry? That's the question that fairly begs for an answer from our text. And quite frankly, as your counseling pastor, it's the question posed to me again and again in my office as the wheels of life seem to fall off and people are struggling with circumstances that bring them to the end of their resources. They're asking me, in effect, what do you do when your well runs dry? I'll answer that today, but first let me give you some backstory by taking you on a trip to the Holy Land. Let me show you a map of the cities that Pastor Pat read about. You'll see circled there Gerar. That was the town to which Isaac and his family relocated when there was a famine in the land of Canaan. It's in the area known as the land of the Philistines. The Philistines were an ancient barbaric people, a seagoing people, that eventually settled along the shoreline of the Mediterranean. And from their name, we derive the name Palestine, which is used to this day. Philistines, Palestine. You can hear the relationship in those words. You'll also see on the map behind me, circled the city of Beersheba, which is the city of the patriarchs. It was home base. This is where Isaac grew up. He moved away, and as you'll learn in this story, he moves back again. Beersheba is an interesting word because the name means well of the oath. We'll explain more about that momentarily. Now, a little bit of backstory here relative to the topography of the Holy Land. Probably most of you have not been there. But there's a difference between Beersheba and Gerar. Beersheba is not exactly Iowa farmland. We are in the breadbasket of the world here, but this is what it looks like near Beersheba. It is a rock desert. It's barren. It's parched. Amazing that God would have led them there. The rains that fall in that arena drain quickly away through porous limestone. So to preserve the rain, the ancients would catch water in man-made quarries called cisterns. But quite obviously, that wouldn't suffice. They also had to dig wells. Digging is hard work. As an Iowa farm boy, I can bear testimony to that. I have a PhD in digging, as in post-hole digging setting fence posts to build fences 
on the periphery of our property or therein. The digging that I did was a whole lot easier, even though I used an old-fashioned auger, no automated equipment. Their digging was a whole lot harder. They certainly had no automated equipment. They had no hydraulic augers. They did everything by hand. Now imagine this, trying to dig in this kind of terrain, trying to dig a well, trying to find water. They had short-handled shovels. They had pickaxes, and they had a bucket with a rope as they went down into Mother Earth trying to dig it out and find water, and they'd send the dirt and the debris up to the top. I mean, this was back breaking labor quite obviously they would keep digging and digging and digging until they finally hit the water table and water began to fill up the bottom of the hole and they would establish it as a place a well where they could secure water now once they'd gone down deep into the hole they would start from the bottom up and they began to rock up the sides to keep it from caving in and then when they reached the surface of the ground they would build a little wall about this high out of rock, and on top of it, they would place a round, thin rock to keep people from falling in and, and perishing. Well, those of you familiar with Scripture know that the Bible talks a lot about wells. Uh, one of those is uh, found in John chapter 4. You need not turn there, but it's the story of the woman at the well, and here, here's a picture of that well. It's called Jacob's Well. If you go to the Holy Land, you'll find churches all over the place at sacred spots. This is a Greek Orthodox church there in what is ancient Sychar, that area. It's built around the well. Uh, this particular well goes down 135 feet. Everybody, anybody here, dig that deep by hand, 135 feet down. Here's another picture of uh, one of the wells of the patriarchs at Beersheba, and they would water their animals, of course, as the water came out as it was brought up. But here's the crucial question for today. Spiritually speaking, what are the wells in the Bible a picture of? Now, we know what they're a picture of physically. I mean, quite obviously. You and I, we, we, we can't live for more than three days unless we ingest water Every good hygienist will tell you, you got to drink, and you got to drink, and you got to drink some more water and wash your hands, and water's the stuff of life. You, you've got to have water. And for an agrarian like Isaac, who was a farmer and a shepherd, who was a rancher, he had to water his flocks, and he had to water his row crops. But I'm talking about a different kind of water today. Water in wells in Scripture are more significant than anything I've just told you. They picture, get this, this is the key to my message, they picture the life of Jesus Christ. They picture eternal life. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Back to the story of the woman at the well, probably well known to most of you here, According to John 4, verse 1, it says Jesus, this is King James language, must needs go through Samaria. That, that means he purposed intentionally to go through Samaria. There were a lot of racial tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
and most of the Jews skirted around as they were coming from the northern region of Galilee down to Judea. They'd just skirt the land of Samaria, but not Jesus. He had a divine appointment with this woman at noon on this day. And I just want to pause a moment to say, I am convinced that Jesus Christ is here today and has a divine appointment with some of you. You're not here by accident. You think you are. You think you chose to come, but God drew you to hear this message about the water that he can offer to you. Jesus asked her a question, would you, would you give me a drink from, from this Jacob's well? She, she was astounded, like, what? Why would you, a Jewish male, ask water from me, a Gentile Samaritan woman? We just we don't have anything to do with each other. And Jesus turned the conversation, as all good evangelists do, he made the spiritual application, and this is what he said. I just love these words. He said, using a play on words, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. A few verses later, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to note especially the word spring of water. We're talking about living water. If you look at verse 19 in our text, one of the wells that Isaac's men dug, it was a spring or it was living water, which means it was an artesian well of water that bubbled up on its own. It was flowing water such as would be found in a stream. Uh, this is the, the kind of water that can still be found to this day in the Holy Land. If you take a tour there, they're, they're likely going to bring you by this location. This is called En Gedi. It's the oasis of the kid or the goat. This is right on the shores almost of, of the Dead Sea. What a contrast between that dead water and this living, flowing water at En Gedi. Speaking of, of, of the Holy Land, it was exactly... 34 years ago this month that my wife and I went for the only time in our lives to the Holy Land, and she was carrying our, our last child, uh, whose name is Julia. We had some fun with that when we were up in Nazareth. My wife's pregnant, you know, so you think about the story of Mary at Nazareth. So we put her on a donkey for, for some photo ops, you know, pregnant woman. <laughs> we, we had fun with that. But, but I also tried to bring a little bit of the Holy Land back with me. And so, just on a whim, I, uh, I filled a couple of vials with water. You see them there on the screen. And uh, the first vial I filled up, the, the darker one, the murky one, is from the Dead Sea. You know anything about the Dead Sea? <laughs> it's dead for a reason. I mean, that's why it's named, because it's full of minerals and salt and you don't want to drink that stuff, it'll kill you. You try to dive in, you'll float. Dead Sea's no good. And I hadn't pulled this out for years, but it is murky. But I pulled out this little vial that I drew from the River Jordan, and it's as clear today as it was 34 years ago this month when I drew it from those waters. It's, it's phenomenal. It's like it, I drew it this morning out of tap water. This, this is living water. This is dead water. Listen for the significance of that during the course of this message. Symbolically, 
Jesus Christ provides living water, a source of spiritual blessing that never goes away, no matter what our circumstances in life. This water is figuratively captured in the irrigation water that Isaac used when he planted his row crops. You see it in our text, verses 12 to 14. Look at the screen. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Probably because he irrigated. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. The unsaved crowd looks at Christians and says, why are you guys so happy all the time? What's with you guys? They, they envied what he had. Now, you got to understand something about the Bible. The Old Testament is a picture book of New Testament truth. Did you know that? The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, and the, the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. It's a picture book. It's an illustration. It's a color book to help us understand New Testament truth. In the Old Testament, God work, works with his physical people, Israel. He promised uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a land, physical blessings, all kinds of blessings, as well as spiritual. But today, he, he works with his spiritual people, the church, and he blesses us with spiritual blessings that are really far more significant than anything physical. And the book of the Bible that probably deals with this more than any other is the book of Ephesians. And it outlines for us what, what God gives to us when he regenerates us by the water of life through Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, I've got good news for you. If you have drunk from this water of life, Jesus Christ, then certain things are true of you that nobody can ever take away. What is true of you? What are your blessings? Isaac had blessings. What are your blessings? Here they are. I've enumerated them on the screen. Verses 3 through 14, one sentence in the original language in the Greek because they're all strung together. You've been chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. If you're a child of God, you are a saint. You are an holy one. You are hagios. That's what God calls you. You're loved and you're predestined to the adoption of sons. He predetermined to make you just like Jesus. You're accepted in the beloved. How many people come into my office and they're struggling with problems and they're looking for love and they're looking for acceptance and they try this and they try that and you'll never find it until you drink of the life of Jesus Christ. That's when the water of life begins to flow in and through you. You're redeemed through his blood. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Hebrews 10, 17. You're given an inheritance. All that is God's becomes yours, and you're sealed with the Spirit. God's mark of ownership is upon you because God lives in you. Now watch this. Most people who think they're Christians are not. They're going through the motions. They've been drinking from the waters of the Dead Sea, but there's no life in them. Do you know what the definition of a Christian is? God lives in them. 
by means of the Holy Spirit, when you embrace the gospel that Jesus died for you to pay for your sins, that he rose again, and you accept him, the God of heaven, the creator God, something happens and his life comes into you and you can never die. Wow. This is the truth of the blessing of God. This is living water. Now, even though we are blessed like Isaac, we also have trials like Isaac. What do these trials look like in our life? Well, they look like his trials. I'll do some spiritualizing here, but I would lump them into four categories. At first, the trials that come directly as an act of God. Insurance people talk about incidences like tornadoes and hurricanes being an act of God. Well, in our case here, drought and famine fit that description. This is an act of God. Famine is a picture of financial hardship or occupational challenge. And some of you are there. You're frustrated. You've had it up to here and what's going on occupationally. And maybe your bank account, you know, there's, a, there's not a whole lot left. Why does God let his people go through a famine? Now, now stay with me here. If you follow the storyline in the book of Genesis and you go all the way end uh, of these 50 chapters, you're going to find Israel, the 12 tribes, the 12 kids of Jacob, the boy of, of Isaac. They got about 70 of them, and, and there's a famine in the land. And Joseph has been sent ahead to become a savior. He goes through all kinds of trials, but then God elevates him to be the prime minister of Egypt so that he can save his own people alive. And because of the kindness of the Pharaoh and Joseph, come on down from Canaan to the land of Goshen. We'll take care of you. And God provides for his family during a time of famine. But you know the rest of the storyline and the book of Exodus, you know that there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph and began to persecute the Jews because they were multiplying so rapidly into the millions of people and they placed the Israelites into servitude and made them slaves. And for the better part of 400 years, God's people became slaves to the evil taskmasters of Egypt. Hmm. The, the, the question is, why? This is a question that comes to me all the time in the counseling office. Pastor Kurt, why did this happen in my life? I'm not God, and so oftentimes I have to simply say, I don't know, but God does. We know in the case of Israel, it purified their faith, and God's letting you go, and go through some things right now to purify your faith. We also know that it built into God's salvation narrative. The story of the Exodus is the single greatest illustration of salvation in the Old Testament. Do you remember the story of the Passover? The entire Jewish world on March the 30th of this month is going to remember Passover, the Passover lamb that was slain. And they exited the land of Egypt because of what God did for them when the death angel came. He passed over them because they applied the blood to the doorposts of their home. Now, this is what burdens me, and we need to pray for our Jewish friends. They don't understand that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Oh, that God would open their eyes to see that Jesus is the one who bore their sins. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Secondly, there are trials that come from personal sin. Isaac lied. I won't read these verses. Pastor Pat twice already spoke about this because it occurred in Abraham's life and the apple doesn't fall far, far from the tree. What did he do? When he went over to the land of the Philistines, he said, these are pagan people. They don't fear God. My wife's a looker. I think Abimelech's going to want to add her to the harem. We'll tell a white lie. You're, you're just my sister. Coward. He's throwing shade on his wife, Rebecca. He's throwing her under the bus. I mean, here's the same dude who in chapter 22 was willingly bound by his daddy and placed on an altar, and he would have died because dad said, God's in this. Of course, God stopped that. He didn't really want Isaac's life. He wanted Abraham's heart. But Isaac would have died there in chapter 22, and by we get to chapter 26, he's willing to sell his wife down the river. I mean, go figure. What's with us? That's the human condition, unfortunately. What do we do when we sin against God and sin against our family? And then thirdly, there are the trials that come from enemy animosity. We see this in a series of fights over wells. For application purposes, I've, I've broken them down in three ways. First of all, there are struggles that stem from wells of envy, 14 and 15. The Philistines envied Isaac's success, and they stopped up the wells that Abraham and his people had dug. That is, they filled them with dirt. How maddening was that? I mean, I already described for you all the labor that went into digging a well. And now these dirt bags are filling these holes with dirt, and they can't use them. Ugh. It happens in life. It happens to Christians. <laughs> And then secondly, there are struggles that stem from wells of contention. The world wants supremacy over God and his people. The world is going to fight us at every turn. Have you noticed that yet? Have you noticed the growing divide, the animosity, the hostility that's growing toward Christians in our society? There's a tidal wave coming over, and it's going to intensify because as Jesus put it when he told the parable, he said about these people that they said, we will not have this man, i.e. Jesus, to rule over us. Hmm. And, then, and then thirdly, we have uh, struggles that stem from wells of hostility. To steal a well was a declaration of war. If you know anything about the, the pioneer West in America, the water rights fights that went on, that was true back then, too. But Isaac refused to fight. He just moved on from well to well, first at Rehoboth and later at Beersheba. And incidentally, the wicked king Abimelech, he saw how peaceable Isaac was. And he saw how God blessed him, and he said, time out. I'm going to stop picking on you. I want to have a peace treaty. And so he made a, an oath. I won't persecute you anymore. Hence the name of the well. The well of the oath in Beersheba. And then fourthly, there are the trials that come from our immediate family. This strikes close to home. Look at verses 34 and 35 on the screen. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith. This is 
This is Isaac's boy, one of the twins. When he was 40, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife. She was a pagan woman, not a follower of the one true God. And Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, another pagan. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Do I have a witness for some of you here? You know, when your kids are, are little, they can step on your toes, and when they get big, they can step on your heart, especially if they marry poorly, if they marry outside the faith. And these two daughter-in-laws became a burr in the saddle of Isaac and Rebekah. That's, that's deep pain. So how do we handle these trials? Well, let, let me go back. Let me go back to the major imagery of this passage and this message, the digging of other wells. I'm going to flash it on the screen. I want to review all the well digging, okay? How many wells Isaac's guys dug or re-dug? Here we go. And Isaac dug again the wells, verse 18. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water, verse 19. Then they dug another well, verse 21. And he moved from there and dug another well, verse 22. And there Isaac's servants dug another well, verse 25. Woo. Now remember all the labor involved here? Life can be back-breaking. Trials come in waves and they seem to be overwhelming. So let me make this message a little more interactive with you. I want you to try and precise a little memorable line. We'll put it on the screen here for you. It's time to dig another well. Would you repeat that with me out loud right now? It's time to dig another well. Say it again. It's time to dig another well. Now let's apply it to these four trials in Isaac's life and our lives. And the reason you need to apply it, because some of you here today, I, I know, I'm your, I'm your counselor. We all have problems. Everybody needs counsel. Everybody, including this guy. <laughs> and sometimes we get stuck in life, and we get so frustrated, and we're angry at our husband or our wife. We're, we're angry at our kids and our job, and we're frustrated, and we just want to be done with life. I'm so done with all these problems. That's the way many of us come to church. So now we need to apply what we're learning here today. I'm going to read you a line, these four trials, and then I want you to repeat this line after me, okay? Here we go. When God sends famine into your life, okay, I think you can do better. When you sin against God or your family, When the enemy rises up in animosity to steal your wells. When your kids do something to disappoint you. You say, okay, Kurt, so what do you mean by it's time to dig another well? Let me explain. To dig another well is to not give up on Jesus Christ when you hit a hard spot. And some of you are there. God's testing your faith. Is it real or is it fake? And they say, they're saying, in America, most Christians are not genuine Christians. They have a fake faith because when the trials come, they're gone. They're gone. Mm. 
It is to rest in the covenant promises of Christ to you. God said to Isaac, you're going through hard times? Just remember my promise that I made to your daddy Abraham. I'm going to make it to your son Jacob. I'm going to see you through. I'm going to give you lands. I'm going to give you people through your progeny. All the people of the earth are going to be blessed. How? Through Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's good stuff. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is your joy. You see in yellow a light on, on the screen. We have good friends from my former ministry in Washington State. I pastored for about 27 years in the Seattle area. And there's a dear saint there. She lost her husband a number of years ago. And she said, Kurt, would you come back for the funeral? He was an ophthalmologist. He died of agonizing death of Pick's disease. And Sharon, she, she called Karen last week. She said, would Kurt be willing to fly back and do my funeral too? But she used a line when her husband was dying of Pick's disease, and I've picked this up, and I just love it. It's, it's in the yellow there. When you're going through a trouble in life, this is what she would say. For this, we have Jesus. For this, we have Jesus. I didn't put it on the screen, on the notes. I wrote this afterward, but here's something I'd like you to write down, okay? I hope you get the import. The well may get plugged up, but the underground aquifer never runs dry. Okay, what do you mean by that? I mean by that sometimes it's hard to read God, but I mean that the life of Jesus, the flow of Jesus is always there if we'll just take the time to dig another well. The well may get plugged up, but the underground aquifer never runs dry. In his commentary on Philippians, Warren Wiersbe states that there are four joy stealers in life. They are circumstances and people and things like, like the market and worry. But none of these things can steal Jesus from us. So let's, let's dig deeply into the water of life and let the water flow freely through us. I'm going to ask Pastor Pat to mail out this week or next week a video I did that answers the question, why isn't the Christian life working for me? Because time and again, I have people come into my counseling office and they got a problem, and, and I often will ask them this question. So can you tell me, how does one live the Christian life? This is going to shock you, but hardly ever have I heard the right answer. Because people think living the Christian life is a matter of external mechanics. Yeah, I go to church, check. Yeah, I read my Bible, check. I pray, check. I go to cell group, check. But there's no connection to the living Christ. Christ is the only one who can live the Christian life. You cannot. This is what happens to people. At a point in time, they understand we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and they're trusting in him. But somehow along the way, they leave off of that, and they go back to relying upon themselves and their own self-efforts, and they're trying to run faster and try harder, and they hit the brick wall, and they come in and they say, the Christian life isn't working for me. That's because they're not connected to Jesus Christ on an ongoing basis. He said, what are you saying, Kurt? I'm talking about the vine and the branches. 
We're the branches. He's the vine. We get our strength from him. Branches don't produce fruit. The vine does. I'm talking about Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is a man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And watch the illustration. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. There it is. That's Jesus. Who brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The reason why you're dead is because there's no living water flowing through you. I'm convinced most people in America, I mentioned this earlier, who think they are Christians are not. Hmm. This will shock you. Uh, Covenant Eyes is is a, a filter system guys use who are struggling with porn. I recommend it to you. Here's a quote for you from CovenantEyes.com. Christian men who self-identify as fundamental Christians, that is the more conservative brand of evangelicals, are 91% more likely to look at porn than unchurched men. What? Why is that? Because most people who come to church are only going through the motions. They check the box. They're reading the word. They're praying. But it's all externalism. There's no life of Christ, no roots going down into the very person of I am who gives you life and vitality and brings change to bear upon your life. That's why it's not working, because Christ is absent their life. I'm going to close with an illustration. I I hope this will grab you. It's from John chapter 7. It's the story of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is there. Uh, In the first century, the Jews would celebrate three major feast days, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Pentecost. This is Tabernacles. What did they do on Tabernacles? They would live for a week in Tent City. Now, they didn't get their tents from REI or Camping World they went out and they cut branches, evergreen trees, palm branches, and they'd put them maybe up on their, on their property, and they'd live in lean-tos for a week to commemorate how God brought Israel through their wilderness wanderings for 40 years as per the book of Numbers. There was other symbolism involved in this because on each day of the feast, the people would come with some of these palm branches and march around the great altar in the temple. Can you picture this? And the priest would get a a golden pitcher and he'd go just outside the temple mount and he'd dip into a body of water called the Pool of Siloam. Now get this, don't, don't be lost on this. Siloam means scent. Scent with water. And, and he would dip into the water And each day he would come back to this temple where the people had gathered with their palm branches and he would symbolically pour the water out as an offering to God. What was he doing? He was helping them to remember how God gave them water in the wilderness. Remember through Moses when he spoke to the rock? Remember how he smote the rock and the water flowed out? And by the way, we have divine commentary on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul says, and that rock that followed them 
was Christ. I love that. Symbolic of Jesus Christ, the living water. On the last day of the feast, stay with me here, the people, this is day number seven, would march around this altar for seven times. Now think about your Old Testament history. Any guess as to why they would walk around the altar for seven times on the last day, the seventh day? Any guesses? How about Joshua chapter 6 and the story of Jericho where they marched around the enemy city and after marching seven times they shouted and they blew the trumpets and the walls came tumbling down. So we've got a week that's reaching a crescendo. This is wonderful. And at the end of these seven journeys around the altar, this same priest would bring the water from the pool of Siloam sent and he would begin to pour the water out upon the altar. And at that very moment, Jesus, who was standing there amidst the hundreds or thousands of people, shouted perhaps as loudly as he could to all who would listen, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What an impact. Mm. The last book in the Bible, the last chapter in the Bible gives an invitation. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires come and take the water of life freely. I've preached the gospel to you today, and I've been praying for some of you by name, that you will ingest this water of life, which doesn't happen because you grew up in religion or the church. There must come a day, a moment, when you repent of your sins and you realize that Jesus is your only hope. You're dead in trespasses and sins, and he alone can give you life through his sacrificial death and his resurrection. And I go back to these little vials of water here. Maybe we can flash that up on the screen again. If you can get back to that picture. Okay, after 34 years, the dead water, sea water, is still dirty. It's still dead. You know what that represents? That represents a lot of you who've been doing your religious gig thing over the years, and you've been going through the motions, but it's killing you because it's not alive. It doesn't involve the life of Jesus Christ, the creator God who gave his life for you. It's just dead. So you've got to give up that whole religious gig thing that you can somehow save yourself. But this, uh, this clear water from the Jordan River, it's a picture of the life of Jesus Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ who will give you living water if you will believe. Do you know what Jesus did? In the Jordan River, one day, he began his ministry. He said, oh, by the way, John the Baptist, I want you to baptize me. He said, why? He certainly had no sin. You're right. He did it, Scripture says, to fulfill all righteousness. He did it to illustrate what he would do for you and me. What did Jesus do? What is biblical baptism? It is immersion that illustrates the meaning, determines the mode. He went down into the water, picturing his death and burial and he come up out of the water, picturing his resurrection. 
as an illustration that if you would drink his living water, i.e. believe in his death on your behalf and his resurrection, if you will in this moment embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I guarantee you, you will never thirst again. Would you pray with me? Lord, my heart's been impassioned as I've studied this text and I've prayed for people by name. Only you can show them the truth. I, I don't have that power. I can't put the water within. No pastor or priest can. This is a divine work of God whereby your spirit, you bring us to the end of ourselves. We're thirsty, we're dry. We come to the end of our resources and we realize, I got nothing. And that's where you brought us on purpose because we're dead in trespasses and sins. But then you showed us the life that's in Christ, the living Lord and Savior who defeated death and came back in his resurrection to prove that he did all that's necessary for our sins to be forgiven. If only we'll believe. I pray today that someone, several someones, will reach out in this moment and say, yes, Jesus, come into my life. I'm tired of dead religion, dead sea religion. I want Jordan River living water faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be born again and transformed forever. I never want to thirst again. If you're in that situation right now, would you just reach out by faith and tell the Lord you want to be saved? You want to accept him? You want to believe on him? Drink, drink fully, freely, and you'll never thirst again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?